right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. And uh, thank you all for joining me today for this um, typically question and answer based podcast. Today is not a question and answer based podcast, though. So typically, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can submit a question there by clicking on the, as you would have guessed, submit a question link. Send me a question about OCD and anxiety and support for someone with anxiety and how to do therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Send me any question you'd like. I will I will get it, read it, consider it, and likely put it up on a future episode. Uh, you can also do that over at Instagram. Um, I am Fearcast Podcast over at the Instagrams. And um, one of the best ways to um, send a, a, a question these days is an audio question. Go over there and send me a direct message. Click on the little microphone, record it over there. It'll send directly over to me that way. Um, uh, you can also send me an audio, record it onto your phone, send it over either to questions at fearcastpodcast.com or share a, uh, a link to a shared Google Drive from uh, or at the fearcastpodcast.com, submit a question link as previously mentioned. Anyhow, um, today is not going to be a question and answer based um, episode. Today is one of those episodes where I had the privilege of interviewing a uh, a, a an expert on um, on OCD to talk about a different way of approaching treatment. So today I had, excuse me, today I had Rich Gallagher on. He's a uh, licensed therapist, uh, and he is the author of an article in the IOCDF newsletter that uh, I will I will link to on the uh, on the episode page. Um, the article is called "Disgust Based OCD: Thoughts on a New Treatment Protocol." So. So we're going to be talking about, as you could have guessed, treatment for disgust-based obsessions. So we'll talk a little bit more about it in the episode, but kind of disgust-based is slightly different from what we've been talking about, what we typically would talk about in OCD land. In OCD land, we often talk about the obsession, like the obsessions, the feared story, right? What is your brain telling you about this thing that's going to happen? For some, there is no feared story. Well, for some, it is just this thing feels gross. This thing makes me feel bad. I feel disgusted. And that's as far as it goes. Now, there are other elements that can complicate it, sure. But generally speaking, when it falls into a disgust-based obsession, typical exposure and response, exposure and response prevention treatment lacks. It fails. And it's frustrating for the clinician, frustrating for the individual. So um, so Rich Gallagher put together a, a kind of a treatment protocol discussing the differences between um, uh, differences between ERP and what he call and and this which he calls a mastery model. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So this is a long episode. I apologize. Sorry, not sorry. It was a great conversation. Uh, Rich was so generous to talk about uh, talk about his approach. We also um, uh, devolved a little bit into kind of the growing and shifting and changing of the treatment landscape and how um, research and growing interests and growing knowledge of treatment and uh, the feedback from individuals experiencing uh, OCD in its various flavors are influencing treatment uh, itself. So we talked a little bit. We talked a lot a bit about just how the landscape is changing and, and how we are um, how it's it, it's good how it's it's frustrating how it's it's exciting how it's um, you know it, it it's tough to try to accommodate and 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 think about all these different approaches but also how it's great 
that we can use all these different approaches to meet someone where they're at and to help someone where one approach may not be working for them as effectively as it could and as they would want. So we kind of go all over the place, so I appreciate your patience within it. it this might be one where you break it up uh, into a couple of different listens. So, anyhow, um, uh, a little bit about a little bit about Rich Gallagher. So, Rich Gallagher is a licensed uh, uh, marriage and family therapist. He's a graduate of the IOCDF's BTTI. It's the Behavior Training or Behavior Therapy Training Institute, um, and uh, he he practices. He treats OCD and anxiety. He also works uh, with uh, uh, workplace issues, career paths, couples, and individuals. Um, he's also a best-selling author, um, and he talks a little bit about his, uh, his previous life uh, in, the, uh, um, uh, in the engineer and software uh, world. So he'll talk a little bit about that and his transition into being a therapist. So without further ado, everybody, here is my conversation with Rich Gallagher. All right. Thank you so much, Rich Gallagher, for joining us for the FearCast today. Hi. It's great to be with you, Kevin. I've been a big fan of your podcast, and it's nice to be uh, your guest today. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you could join us. So I I reached out to you. Um, I, I, I read something about discussed-based uh, OCD, kind of this theory, a little while ago, and then I came across your article in the IOCDF newsletter, read through that, and went, man, I've read this before. And then I, I thought, you know, this would be something that, that needs to be talked about, addressed, um, and kind of gotten into the hands of people who may be struggling with disgust-based obsessions or a therapist who's got a client who's struggling with disgust-based obsession and may need to hear hear a different way of doing this and hear permission on how to maybe step outside of the box to trying something new that may reach the ears of someone struggling with this and feeling like they're just not going to get better. And I'm so glad you're disseminating these ideas, Kevin. Uh, I mean, kind of the backstory behind this, yeah. I've always used kind of a strength-based approach to ERP. I'm a BTTI graduate like you, and I'm, uh, you know, a hardcore CBT therapist, and I very much believe in the science. But the, I had a lot of clients who were very squeamish about traditional straight-down Broadway ERP. And so by focusing on their strengths um, in terms of how they could expand their comfort zone from week to week, I had really good outcomes. However, the real backstory uh, behind this came not just from my clients, because I found some of my discussed cases were also very sticky, but for me personally, mm-hmm. uh, I have lived experience with OCD. I, for years, had very well-managed contamination OCD, which didn't yield particularly well to exposure. Uh, I've had it work well for other themes of mine, but not for that one. But uh, as I approached retirement, I'm almost 70 now, I... Uh, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with a heart condition, put on a medication that plunged me into a severe depression, and my previously well-managed OCD went through the roof. Mm. As I climbed out of that, traditional ERP left me traumatized and housebound. And, uh, mm. you know, thankfully, I found a great uh, ERP therapist who really knew her stuff about ERP, but also was open and flexible about trying to figure out what was going wrong here. We spent months jiggling the key in the lock, and I did a lot of searching the literature, and we discovered two things. One is there's a growing body of research, especially over the last 10 years, that disgust does not respond the same way as fear does. Um, And what, what I discovered is that by tweaking the exposure logic and learning to expose myself to avoided situations, which do habituate, versus the triggers, which for all practical purposes don't habituate quickly, um... 
that was game changing in my own recovery. Mm. And so, uh, and so, you know, in addition to my own recovery and my own client experiences, uh, you know, that was where the thought came in about proposing this as a treatment protocol. Ever since then, I have gotten a flood of feedback from people saying that this has been game-changing for them. Now, now suddenly their clients are uh, leaving the house for the first time, shopping for the first time, doing things in public, and and that the strategy has worked really well for them. Um, you know, fair, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this offline. It involves some things that go against the religion of traditional ERP, such as using safety behaviors and so forth. But I want to get into gory detail as to good and bad uses of the strategy and why it works so well for disgust. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing this in a little bit more detail. So why do, why, I suppose, why don't we start off with just, like, what, what would be, we, we've kind of talked about how disgust-based OCD treatment is going to be different than the traditional uh, ERP, CBT-based approach. I guess, could you could you go over, you know, let's mm-hmm. say this is the, a new podcast for someone who hasn't really heard about this. Can you do like a brief, a brief overview of what ERP would be and then how that would differ then from uh, disgust-based? Absolutely. Um, and that's a great way to frame this, Kevin. The, uh, of course, ERP, for the people who aren't as familiar with it, um, you can su- summarize it as field of fear and do it anyway, although <clears throat> it's a little more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, traditional habituation-based ERP revolves around the whole concept of an extinction burst, which I feel is a magic eraser for fears. Um, in other words, the discovery that if you sit with a fear trigger long enough, um, and especially if you choose that level of fear, then eventually your amygdala, that part of your brain that tells you to worry about things that could cause you danger, um, your amygdala gets bored with it, and that level of anxiety drops off a cliff if you wait long enough. And so, um, and that's why ERP has been so effective for things that are fear triggers, especially when it's titrated properly and done humanely. Uh, so I'm still a big fan of the ERP model. Mm-hmm. Discussed, on the other hand, uh, I'll try not to get too deeply into neurobiology here, but it's processed in a very different part of your brain. In the early 2000s, they did MRI studies that showed that when people react to disgust, it's processed by a part of your brain known as the insula. It's tied in with your gustatory reflexes over eating. Mm-hmm. And its purpose is to prevent you from being poisoned by mm-hmm. things. And so as a result, when you encounter a disgust trigger, what happens is that goes into your long-term memory. And those, and those triggers, you know, for the sake of survival, don't change very easily. And there is... In many cases, no extinction burst for disgust. There are other cognitive strategies that help, but not that one. So what we discovered, you look at contamination OCD is one of the bigger themes of OCD that Mm -hmm. people treat. And as we all know, uh, ERP has a, uh, does have a noticeable failure rate among certain communities of people. We talk about it having a 60% effectiveness rate. The studies vary, of course. Abramowitz mentioned 50%. When you count in things like dropout, relapse, treatment, failure, and things like that. When people do it and it works, it's highly effective. But there is a fraternity of people for whom it doesn't work. And that's where new ideas like these, you know, and some of the newer cognitive approaches uh, are reaching to that, that unlucky 40% or whatever that number is. Right, right. 
So kind of the, the, the part of the brain, um, to just kind of take a step back, that, that part of the brain, you said that the insula is kind of managing that disgust. That's where that, is that where that one trial learning takes place? You eat something? Yeah, go ahead. That's correct. Now, th- you know, think about your own experiences. So if you were listening to Kevin and me, if you've, if you ate something and got really sick from it mm-hmm. 20 years ago, I'll bet you anything you still avoid it today. I have and, not, I, I have not had a Thai iced tea in probably 13 years because of a one bad experience. And I used exactly. to love it before that. And that means you're a really smart guy whose survival instincts are working A-OK. Uh, One of those things is true, but go on. Back when when I was your neighbor in Orange County, uh, and now I'm almost 70 now, so back in the 80s when I lived in Orange County, I was in my 20s or 30s, um, you know, I had artichokes. They were delicious. I had a big plate of them and then spent the rest of the night throwing up. I I can't even look at an artichoke (laughs) nowadays. Fair enough. Right. And that... And, that, and that, that part of our brain, as much as we can hate on it, as much as the, you know, the, someone experiencing disgust might be so angry at that part of their brain, it's really adaptive. I mean, think about, think about those, you know, back in the day, if you were to eat something that was bad for you and you had a tremendous reaction to it, your brain would say, mm-hmm. hey, let's not do that again. And it holds right. on to that because if you kept eating it, one, it might, it might kill you. Which is bad. That's that's exactly correct. It's a, I, I believe that almost all OCD is a survival instinct that is finely tuned in really intelligent people, and I think that's especially so in the case of disgust. So I'll press forward a little bit about what this means clinically, okay. and I think it really means that you have to take a step back and look at how we overcome fe- how people who don't have OCD overcome fear and how people who have disgust overcome disgust because mm-hmm. they're very different things. So think of something I mentioned in the article. Suppose you are learning to ride a bicycle for the first time. It's scary when you first take your feet off the ground and try to go forward in the bike. And, you know, unless you're a fan of skin knees, you're going to go carefully and, and you're going to habituate to it. But then at some point, you have that extinction burst. You cross over, now you're able to ride the bike, and you have that skill forever. Um, and that's why we have the term, it's like riding a bike. Now, let's look at disgust. Let's say um, you look at a new mother who's having to deal with a flood of poop for the first time, or a sanitation worker who has to handle yucky garbage every day or a paramedic who has to tend to dead bodies. You know, my neighbor in Orange County was a paramedic. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, he was the fire chief of, uh, you know, one of the cities in LA. And uh, he said, I've seen so many dead bodies in so many different places. I'm I'm used to it. So the thing is, you know, that mother doesn't stick her hands in a pail of dirty diapers to get used to poop. She keeps, she keeps changing her baby and does it often enough that that becomes less scary and routine and the trigger soften over time. Paramedics don't hang out with dead bodies all day to get used to them. They do their job. Um, and that's how we get over disgust is we learn to live with it rather than habituate it or overcome it. Because, again, that's such a strong survival instinct. And that is the key to how um, I've discovered and we've discovered that we treat it clinically, which is uh, now the everyone who's already an OCD therapist and is a big fan of ERP, take a deep breath and, and gasp here with me. 
It involves using judicious use of safety behaviors. <gasps> um, <laughs> Did it work? Did it do it? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> it involves judicious use of safety behaviors to listen carefully, make yourself comfortable enough to get a lot of practice in the situations you're avoiding because of the disgust trigger, which means that if you get enough practice in, those triggers soften over a very long period of time and you get used to listen carefully the situation not the trigger um, yeah and I, I want to jump in there I think that's I think that is the dramatic shift in this is the mm-hmm. is the focus of what you're working to of, kind of your, your target of treatment I think the mm-hmm. tradition I, I love the, the examples you gave right they're very visceral right? the by the way the phrase flood of poop, is is I, I think if nobody is getting that mental image, just work at it. Just really get this idea, this flood of poop. I'm a parent. I've got two kids. There's a flood of poop, and it's it's gross. There's no right. not there's no ungrossing that right. But this idea of like you're right to get used to the traditional ERP method. All right, we're going to get used to the poop. We're going to put our hands on the poop. We're going to sit there. We're going to look at our hands with the poop and just tolerate that feeling. Observe where it's at and just ride that out. If it's a dead body, we're just going to go hang out by some dead bodies because we have them around. And we're just going to hang out with them until we get used to them. But there may be no getting used to it. In my case, personally, that approach, which again, you know, the ERP therapists I first saw were good therapists. They were practicing how they were trained. Uh, I'm not faulting them. But that approach traumatized me and has traumatized other people. And uh, a great example in public is um, Scott Stossel, who's the editor of Atlantic Magazine. If you Google him, he wrote a book called My Age of Anxiety. He also wrote an article in Atlantic Magazine. He has a metaphobia and... Mm-hmm. People and his CBT therapist had him do an emetophobia exposure that involved actually throwing up, taking syrup of IPCAC with a nerf there. Oh. It, went hor- it went horribly sideways. It traumatized him. It traumatized his therapist. It traumatized the nurse. Um, it was a long road back from, from that exposure. And okay. so, That's a bold move uh, for emetophobia therapy. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and, uh, you know, and this therapist kept saying, no, there's literature support for this. You have to do this and so forth. So, um, <laughs> so glad you share my skepticism about But, you know, the point I was going to make is that, you know, uh, my problem with disgust triggers, um, especially when I had multiple life issues going on, you know, with health and retirement and things like that, mm-hmm. um, all those exposures did was close me in and cross-contaminate everything in my life. So, right. if somebody, and it's in the article I mentioned how trying to do straight on ERP with disgust is like trying to smear dog poop on everything you own, trying to get used to it, and then discovering that you can't. Right. And, and pretending uh, like it's okay. Exactly. So, you know, my advice, if anyone comes to me and says, oh, you should do more exposure, you know, for the and just keep doing it until the disgust triggers are over, which there is an argu- argument for some flavor of that. We can talk about that later. But I'd um, love to hear, the, I'd love to hear know, maybe a de- defining line or a differentiation between when ER, like just hit ERP harder versus um, versus more of a disgust approach. But I'll, I'll put a note down for that. Definitely not hit ERP harder. But if you're going to do lots of exposure, you have to make it comfortable to do that lots of exposure, uh, which means you have to titrate it carefully, and you have to make it palatable to do it often. Uh, but that's, you know, I'll, I'll 
I'll talk about it as a side issue because my focus is really on people functioning better mm-hmm. because discuss fears limit your functioning. Uh, that's the key. Um, here's so here's a quick example of what I propose in okay. the article. Yeah, let's say that somebody's uh, let's say it's somebody's sprayed insecticide all over your kitchen, mm-hmm. and now you can't go in the kitchen. Uh, you're just overwhelmed by that insecticide. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, my big actually my big uh, over the, the big thing I had to overcome in my own recovery was I had a motorhome that did in fact get flooded with insecticide and I couldn't go in it for a very long time. Mm. And learning to use safety behaviors, wearing ratty clothes, wearing gloves, let me go in to the RV and do what I had to do to winterize it, to store it, eventually to get it fixed. Um, now, when would I ever be comfortable sleeping in that RV with all that insecticide? Never. <laughs> However, um, that's like... You've had two kids, Kevin. You know, when will you sit down on a chair that has visible poop on it? Probably never. Um, so <laughs> Alternatively, I, I would say maybe maybe this weekend. I don't know. <laughs> but yes, exactly. I, I hear what you're saying. Will, willfully doing it. Um, yeah, it's it would be rare. Rare. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, is in researching this, I, you know, have... Good friends who are practicing veterinarians, which is another very poop-intensive profession, mm-hmm. and they agreed with everything I was saying in terms of their own revulsion to poop versus their ability to do their job and habituating to that over time as well. Um, but the mm-hmm. point I want to make is, would this be a good time to hit the issue between good accommodations and bad accommodations? Because I bet that's what a lot of your listeners are holding their breath about. Let's, let's jump into that. I think that would be All a right. decent time. Sounds good. So a good, there's actually some literature support for this. It's not something I just made up. Um, a group with John Abramowitz did a paper uh, a few years ago on it where he concluded that judicious use of safety behavior was no better and no worse than ERP. Um, Jack Rockman, Stanley Rockman in Canada, uh, did a, a more recent paper, uh, Adam Radonsky's group, who was, uh, I think, the, the principals at it which uh, used safety behaviors judiciously and showed that that actually had very good outcomes uh, for people. So a good safety behavior is something that enables practice with an avoided situation. You could think of it like a crutch. Mm-hmm. If I do not have a leg injury um, and I use crutches all the time, my leg's going to atrophy. But on the other hand, if I broke my leg and I try to walk without a crutch, I'm either going to be in tremendous pain or I'm going to injure myself. And the crutch enables me to walk long enough that I can eventually put down the crutch and walk without it. Mm-hmm. So good accommodations for disgust should be judicious, should enable more practice, should gradually be pulled away as you get more used to the situation that you're facing the trigger in. And they should be an enabling technology, not an avoidance technology. So if you're simply choosing an accommodation to put further barriers between you and the trigger, that's a bad accommodation, in my view. And I think if we're going to, you know, get nitpicky with words, I think some people might get yeah. hung up on the, the the word enabling, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you said it's an enabling accommodation. It's you know we I think we hear enabling in the context of like yeah. alcohol or drug use, right? So we are enablers right. to this, right? It's that, but mm-hmm. I think in this when I I think what what I'm hearing when you say enabling, it is it is it it is encouraging towards functioning, towards continued. Right continued functioning within their life so that they can keep moving forward, keep holding their responsibilities, their relationships, et cetera, to the point where they can start to pull back on the unnecessary and unhelpful accommodations. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, we 
with that broken leg, that cast yeah. is not then going to be on your leg forever. Right, exactly. But it is there for the period of time until it is healed enough mm-hmm. to then be taken off for a for physical therapy for now having to test that that healed bone. That's a perfect analogy, Kevin. Um, in my case with the motorhome that I was avoiding, as I use safety behaviors, I found myself increasingly getting in the RV, driving it, getting it repaired. I eventually uh, took it to Philadelphia and had it consigned to be sold. Uh, and then... I found over time, it really got a lot easier to do that. And, you know, I remember when I was driving it to Philadelphia, at one point, you know, uh, you know, I ended up coming in contact with things I normally wouldn't contact. And I was like, eh, okay, fine. <laughs> because I had so much practice. And that's, that's where good accommodations soften triggers enough that you can confront things that habituate over a very long period of time. That's really the key. Is it's playing against your insula instead of your amygdala. That's that's the key to this this clinical approach. One other thing I'll say, you know, I love Abramowitz's paper because it was very detailed and had a big sample size. He um, he uh, looked at people who are afraid of spiders and gave them a choice of certain accommodations, like you could wear, wear gloves or boots or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really liked about uh, Radomsky's group was that it was a it was a very complete safety behavior. In other words, it was you were allowed to wash or clean yourself off or have wipes or something like that if you had a contamination fear. So, so I really liked the results that you know that Radomsky's group got with his literature. Um, so, um, I'm open to any questions you might have on how we differentiate good and bad. Uh, good and bad safety behaviors. Yeah, that was kind of going through my mind as, as you were talking about this. Is like, yeah. all right, how? So let's say let's say somebody's listening to this. Maybe it's a family member of of, of someone struggling with disgust based obsessions, and their life mm-hmm. has become very very small right. as a result. Right. right, exactly. But yeah, they've they have read you know they have read things, listened to podcasts, watched videos, gone to conferences, and they've heard accommodations bad exposure right. good. All right, right, exactly. and they want to do the best for their for their person now. How do we then? How how do we start to decide what level of accommodation is going to be appropriate? When are we in a helpful stance towards this person versus mm-hmm. when are we? When are we? And maybe this is maybe this is a language that kind of goes against this approach. When are we yeah. instead fighting for the obsession and we're uh-huh. now in the camp of OCD? Absolutely. So it, it depends on the goal. And in the case of family accommodation, I will bet you anything. The goal isn't for their loved one to get used to a trigger. I'm guessing that the goal is for the family to be functioning better. Mm-hmm. And that should be what the approach was. Long before I ever got up close and personal with my own disgust and, and you know, sort of conceptualized this approach with my therapist, I used a similar strategy with a lot of my other clients. People with scrupulosity, for example, um, where the thought of doing exposure to a blasphemous thought, possibly going to hell, mm-hmm. was overwhelming for somebody. Mm-hmm. But that person was driving their family nuts, seeking constant reassurance. Mm-hmm. And so, what we would do is we would co-create with the sufferer and the family how many fewer times they would reassure themselves this week <laughs> compared right. to last week. Right. So we'd focus on the response prevention part of it. And that worked beautifully. And moreover, to put a finer point on it, I'd give the sufferer a get-out-of-jail-free card where if they had a really bad night, they could compulse away. <laughs> and so these outs, these accommodations had a phenomenal uh, 
response rate from clients I worked with. And so, you know, long before Disgust was ever on my radar, aside from just being something I tolerated, mm-hmm. my own clinical experience with uh, with uh, with accommodations really was game changing for my clients and for me as a clinician. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that that I've I've practiced with clients as well. You know, yeah. you, you bring up the um, you bring the the issue of, of scrupulosity. You know, if we were to just simply say stop doing compulsions, I, we wouldn't see people very long, and they would realize that that just simply the stop it approach. As much as you know, we love that video. I'm sure you've right. seen the stop it video. I have. Oh uh, yeah, I love who it. Who hasn't? But um, it's <laughs> it, it just simply doesn't work, and that's kind of what people hear. So what we are going to say, all right. I mean, let's go shift over to showering. All right. So you're taking a, tw- a two hour shower. Yeah. All right. If you take an hour and a half shower, is that still longer than the average person? Yes, but that's a half an hour of difference, and that's a world of difference in slowly bringing back that accommodation, right? So we are are permitting, in a sense, an hour and a half long shower. Absolutely correct. And uh, and you think about that, if you go from showering, you know, I've, I've seen clients who showered eight hours a day, for example, when you go from that to two hours a day, do you have OCD? Oh, yes, you do. But now you can have a job or relationship, your life has changed in a huge way. Uh, you know, that's what... Uh, that's what happened with me. I mean, for example, you know, I just got back from Europe a few months ago. I discovered I like being in Europe a whole bunch more than I like being stuck in my bedroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, uh, and and you know, be, being in Europe, you still may, you still will likely have obsessions and anxieties and worries and, course, and the, the, the urge towards compulsive behavior and maybe of even course. the giving into compulsive behavior. But you're a lot more likely to be happy in Europe than you are sitting in your room again. That's exactly correct, and I, I loved being in Europe. So, um, the uh, so to put a finer point on this, if you're uh, in terms of what what's good or bad in terms of exposure mm-hmm. and accommodations, mm-hmm. I think it all circles around what's working or not working for the clients. If ERP is a good model, it should work in small doses. For example, if you take a hoop shot low-level exposure, it should eventually habituate, no matter how much act or inhibitory learning or whatever you throw at it, it should it should work. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and this is where a lot of my advocacy comes in nowadays, as I've connected with other clinicians with lived experience who've had similar experiences to mine, mm-hmm. which is, um, unfortunately, sometimes our profession's messaging has led to a reality behind closed doors in therapy where if... ERP or evidence-based therapy in general isn't working for somebody, it's presumed to be our fault. You know, we're not brave enough. We're not zen enough. We're a treatment failure. We need to come back when we're ready. It's the fault of the client. It's the fault of the client. Right. And so, and I think, you know, we should never weaponize the term evidence-based therapy. Um, I follow the literature. You know, as you know, I'm an engineer by training Mm -hmm. and I used to actually publish refereed research in that field. And actual research on OCD and every other field is nuanced and incomplete. Uh, you know, the we say ERP is evidence-based. It certainly is, certainly my go-to for clients. But on the other hand, I've looked at so many papers where they look at 40, you know, sufferers that do ERP and 40 sufferers who read Golf Digest. ERP wins. But, you know, their Yale-Brown scores have have produced by six points, you know, and, uh, and 30% of them didn't respond. So, you know, their suffering matters too. And so um, I honestly think that uh, 
we as a profession have to delight in new ideas and emerging ideas. I think a competent OCD therapist has to have multiple tools in their toolkit. Listen carefully when your favorite approach doesn't work mm. for the client in front of you. And we have to listen to the client in front of us. Mm. Right. Right. It's so tricky. And I think, you know, I've, I've been in that, I've been in that place too. I feel like I'm, you know, periodically getting that with my own clients now of, you know, we're going to do ERP because it works. Mm-hmm. And then you start bashing your head against the wall going, why this isn't, this isn't moving forward at quote, as it should. Right. Exactly. Right. So it's thinking about what are the different ways. I mean, Again, a hammer is great, but when you've got a screw, a hammer is not going to be as effective, right? Absolutely, and uh, uh, and clinicians have to be clinicians who don't have lived experience with OCD have to be particularly careful about this because, you know, the whole movement that you're seeing towards uh, multiple approaches, new ideas, mm-hmm. other cognitive approaches for you. So much of that is being driven by clinicians with lived experience who have seen how. Uh, treating one treatment approach as a religion rather than as your best tool mm-hmm. has affected them and their clients. And that's why you're seeing the kind of advocacy that you're seeing nowadays, which has been very healthy for the field. Right. Right. And uh, yes, and it's, it, 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 it can be, it can be tough. I mean, when people get, you know, hear about a new, a new treatment method, they get really excited behind it. And, you know, of can course. it, can it be used as an integrated approach of saying these are the things that work this is a mm-hmm. integrated toolbox of effective mm-hmm. tools that work instead of saying this is the one throw out all the other ones because they don't work anyways this is we we yammered on about that we don't right. need to hammer that exactly. further exactly every pun intended perhaps I'm, I'm very aligned with that view in other words i think uh, i think you know, the the ideal view is that new i we should delight in each other's ideas old and new we should delight in each other's companies people who are trying to heal this disorder and i think i personally view every approach as a tool not the not the one new thing that's better than all the other things out there and i think i think that's the only healthy rational way to approach being a clinician in a field that's evolving as much as ocd is still evolving absolutely so if we were to so let's Kind of let let's hone in on a on a potential situation if we could, sure. right? So let's let's think about a, a potential person who may be struggling with something that's that's disgust based, and what mm-hmm. what might be a way to start approaching that approaching this case as uh, with with a disgust based OCD treatment model mm-hmm. where there are appropriate and reasonable accommodations that are going to be taking place, and mm-hmm. and um, and then how that's eventually starting to pull back. I mean, I think the, you know, let's, let's go with someone who, I mean, we can go with an emetophobia example if you'd like, or we can, you know, sure. okay. I mean, so let's, I have some, yeah, go ahead. I have, I have some other thoughts. So okay. um, I had a fascinating conversation uh, a week or so ago with another clinician who messaged me about how to use disgust uh, assessment scales. You know, there's two main ones out there. There's the disgust scale, which that looks at things like, you know, how do you react to the thought of eating monkey meat or putting ketchup on your ice cream? And, and it gives you a quantitative score. I'm very how, interested in one and not in the other. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> um, I will not tell so, which one. And, and the, one I like, the one I like better, actually, and this is from, uh, you know, Bumni Olatunji at Vanderbilt, who's really the, the king of discussed research. He's He and Dean McKay at Fordham and a bunch of other people have really changed the game in terms of showing the correlation between disgust and contamination OCD mm-hmm. and looking at it clinically. Um, 
they they freely admit we're just looking at the the clinical aspects of that in terms of how to treat it but they have done such groundbreaking work so anyway but i digress so she wanted to know how should she use these uh, scales as an assessment tool mm -hmm. and my response was that i often don't and the reason is because um Discuss triggers in OCD are often very specific to the individual. Um, as an example, uh, think of a sexual abuse survivor who finds herself disgusted with her body or other people's bodies, for example, and it's getting in the way of intimacy and relationships and things like that. She may be fine with people putting ketchup on their ice cream. She may score very low on uh, a disgust assessment. I like the DPSS from Dr. Atunji because, or Owen Atunji, because... Um, he measures your disgust propensity and sensitivity. In other words, how likely you are to be disgusted and how badly it affects you. So his is, doesn't talk about ice cream and ketchup. He talks about how you feel when you are disgusted, for example. So that's a good measure. Mm -hmm. But in either case, I'm going to start the assessment with their functioning level, their self-report, and their Yale Brown score. How bad is the OCD for their life, for example? And then we work from there. So, so first, I'd want to assess whether this really is disgust versus fear. Mm -hmm. I'll ask a lot of questions about, you know, are you worried you're going to get sick or hurt other people? In that case, that's fear, and that might follow more of an ERP track, for example. Right. And then, but if they say, no, I just feel gross and I worry that I'm never going to feel clean enough again, then that kind of smells like disgust to me. Right. Uh, and I, yeah, I kind of describe this as like one has a story, one just has a feeling. It's that one exactly. is this, like, this will happen and this will happen. And along the way, I might feel disgusted or I might feel anxious, but, and then mm -hmm. it leads to this something. But there's a story, whereas anxiety, whereas there is um, disgust, it's just, it's, I, I just, I just feel bad. I feel gross. Right, exactly. Right. And so then, of course, I'll do psychoeducation with the client. I'll be very transparent about the ways we can approach this clinically in terms of what's out there. I'm not averse to trying a little ERP first and seeing where it goes if the client buys into it. So um, I often use what I call the blood test analogy. Mm. I'll ask the client if they're afraid to have their blood drawn. Most people will say no. And I'll then explain that I'm not afraid of that either. And if I have to have my blood drawn... I'm not going to lay awake at night about it the night before. I'm not going to certainly not show up. But the way I feel just before they jab the needle in, let's call that a five out of 100. That's where I want them to practice. I want them to take a real hoop shot exposure and see and see if, if they can sit with those feelings, be fully present with it, and get that sucker down to zero. And if they can, then ERP is still a trajectory for them. Mm -hmm. But if the thought of even doing a small exposure feels overwhelming, if they're concerned about cross-contamination, or if it's just complicated or scary for them, then I'm going to look at how do you wish you were functioning better? And what could we do to enable you getting more practice doing that function? And so that's kind of my decision tree when I assess somebody. Okay. So let's say in this, we've, you know, you've, you've now decided this person is, you know, less on the, you know, feared story sort of track, right? Less of anxiety mm -hmm. and says, all right, this is more of, it's just disgust, right? I mean, exactly. So to, I mean, the, the, the example of, of, of giving blood, how, how, um, is that more of like, mm -hmm. I mean, cause giving blood is, is, is painful, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know who, you, who you're going to talk to. Or that's going to convince you that you can habituate to a giant metal thing being stuck into your arm is going to feel okay. <laughs> I, I exactly. try to give blood a lot as much as I can, and um, uh -huh. you know I'm not afraid of needles. But then right before you know I kind of tense up and they go, oh, "Are you, right, are you exactly. afraid of needles?" I go, no, it's just mm -hmm. it's a 
it's a giant metal stick being put into my arm. It hurts. Exactly right? correct. <laughs> All right. Well, is that is that more of is that is that indicative uh-huh. of the disgust for someone who may be struggling with this as opposed to it's not like I'm going to give blood and they're going to take out take all my blood or I'm going to get hepatitis mm-hmm. because of this needle it's just yeah it just hurts you framed that beautifully actually i i always came at it from a slightly different perspective which okay. i used as a metaphor for a level of discomfort that i wanted them to not practice above because uh, mm. I always like starting low and slow and seeing if something works before we have them jump off the bridge, so to speak. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, uh, by the way, I, I use ERP as a metaphor because that's, you know, usually my first go-to mm-hmm. with clients. Uh, but, you know, uh, we've recently trained on inference therapy, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh yeah, you know, the same is going to be true with the third wave approaches. Um, the I, ICBT doesn't consider itself a third wave approach, but uh, if I'm going to try a different approach, ICBT I I I can conceive as being very useful for the what ifs that surround a disgust fear. You know, what if something might have been contaminated? You know, am I using my logic here and so forth? So, <laughs> right, kind of indulging the possibilities component of that second module. Exactly. So I'm very excited about strategies like that too. Right. But even in that case. I'm really going to be focused on what works and does it work. And I'm going to be more concerned with what are we doing practically to help somebody function better and get more innings functioning better versus fidelity to a model. Right. Right. And I think that's, I think that's a tremendous approach. So how do we get this person? Yeah. This, this leads into the, the age old argument for therapists of, do we do those like, you know, really sexy, fun TV worthy, big exposures, or do we do things that are leading them more towards function <laughs> within their life? Um, you know, there's, there's roles taken for both, but you're definitely along the lines of function. How do we get this person to just live their life? Go to work, do yeah. their daily tasks, be a functional human being within the context of their life. And within that then, so it sounds like for this person, this imagined person, we've decided, mm-hmm. all right, they, they've, they've, got, they've got more of the, dis- they're more on the disgust side of things. So it's right, just absolutely. this feeling. So now we've got, so we want to think about how is it that, we're going to look at then what their, their in a sense, their compulsions First, what are the mm-hmm. ways that they, what are the things that they feel that they need to do in order to effectively live their life or to functionally live their life? And we're saying mm-hmm. in accommodation to the mastery model that you're kind of championing, we're going to start with, all right, let's do those so that mm-hmm. you can live your life. I love the way you've worded that. That's precisely how I conceptualize and that's precisely precisely how I expose it to the client as well is what would be, you know, what would be a big fat benefit for you uh, compared to where you're at now and what steps could we take to get there? And I want to pick up on something you also said, you talked about the TV worthy exposure. I'm not opposed to them when a client is on board with that idea. Sometimes, you know, uh, signature brave exposure events have been life-changing for people. Mm-hmm. and But that's not something I go to first. Right. That's just my philosophy uh, because of my clinical experience and because I'm the least brave person in the world myself. Um, but on the other hand... Um, in my case, just to do a little self-disclosure here, I first got interested in cognitive behavioral therapy. I became a therapist in my 50s, but when I was in my 20s, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth in the 1970s, I uh, uh, I suffered from severe agoraphobia and lived a very limited life for many years. And 
CBT let me out of my cage and changed my life. I went on to become a software executive and walk half a million air miles. And I'm very thankful for what CBT did for me back then. But what turned the corner for me was a brave, you know, TV-worthy exposure. My family had moved to Arizona, which could have been the moon for me living in upstate New York. And uh, so I did CBT early 70s, you know, bark alarms and Valium type CBT, uh, where I would drive down an unfamiliar road a quarter of a mile at a time. Mm-hmm. And after three weeks, I went three quarters of a mile. Okay, big whoop. <clears throat> when I could go two miles, suddenly I could go five miles. And then the next week, I'd go 70 miles away to the nearest major city. And then immediately afterwards, I got on an airplane and went to, to Arizona and had a great time. And that cured me. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I don't have a second thought about hopping in the car and going to Toronto or stepping on a plane somewhere. That's so, fantastic. Um, and I've had I've seen the same magic happen with my clients, but the differentiator there is they choose that. It's not me in expert mode saying you should or you have to do that. So that's that's just my personal values. And and they've got the willingness to do it. It's it's a it's it sounds like they've got the drive. They, they've got the want to do. Yep. I mean this and it's a it's a whole separate conversation of like how do you apply this then with a of client course. who's just not wanting to do it, not ready to do it. But let's let's you know. Maybe the focus yeah, on that that person who's ready to go. I mean, where's mm-hmm. so where where's that line then? Like, where's that line for you of like that that big accommodation scale, right? They, or the accommodations of yeah. all right, you've these are the compulsions. We're going to call them compulsions. These are the things that you need to do mm-hmm. to get back to your yeah. life. How, do we do we draw the line just to what the individual is doing, or what is the role that family has in that? Because you know, I'm sure you've had had these clients too. Mm-hmm. The, the, the client has asked the family. Well, let's cir- yeah, go ahead. Let's circle back to that. There's a big fundamental question that you ask in this case, which is, are you moving towards or away? So let's take the person who's uh, avoiding their kitchen because of the insecticide. Yeah. If they're going to have some, if they're going to get their meals from Uber Eats, that's a bad accommodation. They're moving away from being in that kitchen. Mm. If they're wearing gloves so they can be back in their kitchen preparing food, you know, you know live it up, you know, knock yourself out and be in that kitchen a lot. But you got to be in that kitchen. Does that make sense? To yes. be in that kitchen. So are you moving towards better functioning or away from better functioning? That's the question. And then there's always the gravity of the accommodation. So you talk about family accommodation. Yes. Often people's OCD involves other people. Mm-hmm. You want to take steps towards making life better for the family and making life better for you. So, uh, that's another example. Take the sexual abuse survivor, for yeah. example. I would want to see them, if, if they grieve the loss of intimacy and, uh, and companionship in their life, I'd want their safety behaviors to take steps towards that. So maybe they chat with people on a dating site and say no, you know, mm-hmm. uh, until they're ready to take another step, for example. But they do lots of practice on that. Um, the... That's my differentiator, uh, is the, uh, you're moving towards, and what's the gravity of the accommodation? And I, I think that's, I, I think that's the frame. The, the, the frame of are we moving towards or against, I think, is, is, a, is a beautiful and very, and very simple way to view it. Is this thing going, I mean, it's kind of the, 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 uh, the, the act kind of target model. Are we moving towards our target, or is this moving away? Um, that idea then of, um, Oh man, I, I completely lost it. Useless. My brain is useless today. <laughs> so I mean, so all right. To, with with those family accommodations, are they? Mm-hmm. 
is, is it something where is it fair or unfair to ask family members to participate in this? And in what way do we ask family members to to join for or you know to what am I trying to say to accommodate through some of these you know behaviors? Or is it do we have mm-hmm. that draw, that distinction? Family members are going to be family members. They're going to be themselves, and they mm-hmm. don't have to. They don't have to participate. It's kind of like that. You know, OCD holds the family hostage. Um, right, absolutely. To itself, right? Absolutely. And that that is something that is evolving still. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important evolution and something I'm very interested in as a family therapist. Um, the My answer to that is that ideally the family and the sufferer co-create weekly goals that they move towards each week. And... I'm more than happy to let them choose the steps and within limits, let them choose the accommodations that allow that next step to take place. Again, based on whether they're moving towards or moving away. Mm -hmm. And uh, if an accommodation is going to enable, open up a lot of space for things that a family has been held hostage for. So for example, um, you know, again, I'll use a contamination metaphor. Let's say instead of making mom prepare all your meals, you wear gloves and you make the meals, um, then wear the, wear the frigging gloves and and make a lot of meals and see where you're at in the month. And, <laughs> and that's where my brain suddenly uh, jumped back on board just a moment ago. It was the reps. It's What's the it? reps. You got it. It's the reps. Good, good accommodation should enable lots of reps with desired behaviors. Right. And that's, and I think that's, I mean, that's, that, that's ultimately the key with, um, you know, with the RP is you, you, you don't just do it that one time. It's mm-hmm. you got to do it. You got to do it. We only get good at something by doing it over and over and over again. Right? And in my humble opinion, remember, I'm just one yawk in the middle of upstate New York. And what I'm talking about with discuss is not research based at this point. But in my humble opinion, this is where we split off to the left from ERP because exactly. the role of ERP is to make yourself comfortable and habituate. But with a trigger that does not habituate, any situation that may be hard, harder to habituate to, your job is to make yourself, listen carefully, comfortable and do a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's worked for me. That's what's worked for clients right. when disgust is the trigger. Right. And again, so it, it's, it's again that, that moving towards, it's, are we doing things that are leading, so those accommodations, are the accommodations helping the person avoid a situation? If that's the case, that's not the direction we're moving in. Correct. But if it's something exactly. that you're doing that you can then practice it, it's training wheels. How do you put the training wheels on the bike so that you can get back to riding that bike? You know, you can try to put someone on a bike without training wheels and just shove them and hope for the best. And it's going to be <laughs> hilarious, but not very helpful. <laughs> but if you put the training wheels on, they're going to kind of get going. I'm thinking about my daughter who's just learning how to ride a bike. It would be oh, good for her. It would be moderately, it would be mean, but kind of, all right. Anyways, someone, el- someone else's child, that would be hilarious. Mine, not so much. But but yeah, that, those training wheels, is going to get them going so that they can go, oh, I can, I kind of got the mechanics. I know how this works. And then I'm ready exactly. to pop those off and, exactly. and they give it a try and maybe fall, probably fall. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but, uh, the reps, how do someone get the reps? And uh, and also, so you've touched on a couple important themes with that whole metaphor about the training wheels. One is moving towards, the other is getting lots of reps in, and then a third one is, as you put it earlier, client willingness. You know, that's a core 
principle of ACT. I think ACT has added a lot of value to ERP over because of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if there's one value that I've always had as a clinician, it's that I've always been client-driven. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, uh, I we co-create a treatment plan with the client. So, for example, again, using my metaphor of a sexual abuse survivor, I've had female clients say, you know, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. I don't want some male therapist like you hanging me over every week and asking how much exposure I've done. So, my response to that is to go full Burger King and say, okay, have it your way. You you tell me how you're functioning every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I've had good outcomes using that, that flexible approach. So... I mean, what I think one of the things that I I, I I'm really in I, that's a big draw for this approach. It is very, you know, it's it, not to get too hung up on the verbiage, but it's very client centered. It is looking mm-hmm. at what what the client's sensitivity will allow them to do, what, and mm-hmm. then therefore what they are willing to do. So it's meeting them. In a sense, it's meeting them halfway rather than saying you're going to accommodate or you're going to step into this framework. We're going to meet mm-hmm. you halfway, and hopefully that will kind of gain their gain their buy-in, gain their willingness to start participating in that process. I know we've talked about you know just right. having flashbacks to our earlier conversation about yeah. this approach, this accommodation isn't mm-hmm. a buy-in tactic, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, it's uh, correct. If it serves as one, that's great. But its real objective is to be an enabling strategy for functioning better, right? And to get used to functioning better, and eventually for those triggers that stay in the way of functioning better, to soften over a long period of time. Right. How? In what ways does this approach differ from maybe inhibitory learning? I know we've we, we've heard been hearing a lot about that at conferences and and things like that. Um, in in what way is it similar? In what ways would you say it's different? That's a good question. I'm not a big expert on inhibitory learning because I haven't really used it myself okay. a lot in practice. So I'll give you, you know, sort of a rookie, a rookie appraisal of that question. Um, the idea that you vary levels of exposure, for example, and that your uh, approach isn't necessarily to habituate, um, but it, instead it's to uh, for your brain to learn over time mm-hmm. uh, by disconfirming. Uh, in uh, disconfirming expectations, that shares a lot in common with what I recommend for discuss, which is putting yourself in a situation. Um, I think, again, this is my lack of expertise on inhibitory learning. I think a lot depends what syllable you put it on. Um, if you're cynical about it, you can look at, at that protocol as saying, oh, so you're not habituating? Well, fine, just keep suffering anyway. Maybe mm-hmm. you'll learn. <laughs> I don't think that that's the intention that Michelle Kraske had mm-hmm. with it. Um, so I'm sure. But on the other hand, the idea that, um, you know, you put yourselves in situations, you live life, and, uh, you know, you don't necessarily follow a hierarchy, and that, you know, sometimes the heavens opened up and you. You look at things from a different perspective. All fears are ultimately lost because we cognitively perceive them differently. Mm. So, so I see thing all of them, without exception. Whether you're habituating to it, whether you're um, using inference therapy to change your logical process to see how you're thinking about it, whether you're using inhibitory learning to disconfirm your expectations about it. At the end of the day, at some point, you've made a cognitive change where uh, where where something clicks. Right. And it's not as scary as it used to be. Right, right. And within that, and I think that's where the reps come back in. We do yeah. that not through, 
I hear the ICBT people yelling at me already. The it's <laughs> we we don't change our thoughts and mm-hmm. then we're ready to go do it. We have to step in. We have to get our butt on the bike and start practicing to the point mm-hmm. where our brain goes, "Oh, I can do this." But I mean, it takes that first step of saying, "I think I can do this," and the convincing you know, yourself. Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting. I I. I I kind of agree with you, and I'll tell you what I mean by kind of agree with you. That was always ICBT's premise, and also Michael Greenberg's premise was that if you're conceptualized, if you're not ruminating, or if you are, you know, stepping outside of the OCD bubble and trusting your senses in reality, uh-huh. um, then exposure becomes easy. You know, then you're just behaviorally testing what you used to avoid, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes that nexus uh, happens, and that's of course for a lot of when ICBT works, that is the mechanism by which it works. You suddenly don't uh, don't have to worry that you're going to harm your kid, or you don't have to worry that uh, that every time you drive over a bump, you've run over somebody or whatever. Um, so, but when it doesn't work, uh-huh. um, you know, sir, there is some overlap with you know with behaviorism here. But I'll give you a- another example, which is another point I wanted to bring up about this discuss protocol, yes. which is I joke that it solves half our problem, which is it's a great strategy for getting used to situations that involve a trigger. The great unanswered problem is still can one ever get used to a disgust trigger? Can we ever make poop not disgusting? Can we ever make things that have imprinted in our insula as disgusting? Can we can we reconceptualize those things? There's been some interesting research um, on strategies like counter-conditioning, for example. Mm-hmm. Jacob Fink-Lamott's group in Germany uh, did a study where they tried a short counter-conditioning example with OCD sufferers with contamination discussed OCD. And it reduced their, it was a very short intervention, it reduced their uh, discussed levels from 4.5 out of 5 to 4 out of 5, so big whoop. But but it's an interesting trajectory. Uh, I personally had an interesting experience with counter-conditioning mm-hmm. that uh, I found fascinating. Uh, you know, during the COVID pandemic, I was doing some COVID testing, and like a lot of us were, mm-hmm. and I spilled that 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 fluid that you you know put the nasal swab in all over my hands. Yeah. And then I looked at the package insert. It, it mentioned the uh, chemical they use, and I looked it up. And they said it's like one of the deadliest poisons known to mankind. It's more it's more poisonous than cyanide. Now, for somebody like me with disgust OCD, the thought of having even one molecule of that on my hands was overwhelming. So, I mean, an average person would look at the concentration of it and realize that the concentration is so low that it's not going to hurt you. But for me, different matrix. So, here's, here's what happened that night. Uh-huh. It was fascinating. So... I, I read an article that said it's deadlier than cyanide. And I thought, cyanide? You know, I eat peaches. I enjoy them. Peaches contain a little bit of cyanide, and I enjoy them. It's part of what makes peaches taste tart. So instead of having a mental image of this fluid as something that was toxic and bitter and so forth, I thought about it that it's like peaches. That was my mental image, and I felt much better about it. <laughs> so um, I think counter-conditioning... Still a lot of research. The results are very modest, but uh, so there's still work to be done in that area. Uh, Dean McKay did a workshop recently on disgust. He's the dean, no pun intended, of uh, it, along with Dr. Olin Tunji. Um, and uh, he acknowledged that that uh, 
he has a concern with counter conditioning that it's hard to find a good stimulus that will overwhelm the bad stimulus of a discussed mm-hmm. trigger. But uh, that's an active area of research. He mentioned some other avenues that people are pursuing, you know, strategies for exposure, for example. Yeah. Where um, so. You know, so stay tuned. There may be actually some hope for that piece of it, too. But we're still very early on that path. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good point um, to bring up here is that, you know, in, in the conversation of how to treat someone with a, with a disgust-based obsession, you know, the, the avenues of treatment are shifting and changing. And, you know, are the, the knowledge base is growing and the, you know, the uh, approaches are going to get fine-tuned over time. But... You know, so it's not to say, as we discussed, you know, your uh, disgust-based uh, OCD treatment protocol, this may or may not be the thing that we're doing in forty years. But I totally this is uh, this is one perhaps better step than what we've mm-hmm. been doing, and that's that's why we're having these conversations and trying to get the information out. Try it, see what works. Get rid of the stuff that doesn't, and do more of the stuff that does. So that's I, uh, yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. I could not agree with you more on that, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I'll make an analogy to my old technical career. I was in the computer graphics field, and if which if you never ever... changes, it is stable as can be. But go ahead. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, um, so if you've ever had a CAT scan, you know, one of my few claims to fame in the computer graphics field is I published the first refereed paper on how to optimize CAT scans. You know, uh, a CAT scan is like a million little boxes, and you go knock on the door of each box and say, "Hi, is your pancreas in there?" And I came up with a, a sorting strategy to let you search a much smaller neighborhood to find that pa- that pancreas and be able to look at those images in real time. So, what's my claim to fame now? Thirty years later, I am the old slow approach that everybody can. Uh, compares themselves to you know so people nowadays say you know we're 20 times faster than the gallagher algorithm and that's delightful because we have better cat scans <laughs> that's, that's i think the way we should all especially you know those people who are, are gurus that's how we should all be approaching ocd treatment and and its research yeah i i i brought this up when i was talking to michael greenberg i have a um in, yeah. in, my, in my waiting or my my lobby in here i have a a, a phrenology yeah. statue Oh, right, right. And, where the shape of your head, you know, bears on your psychology. Exactly. Where, you know, it's, it's <laughs> while, you know, debunked as pseudoscience in its finest, in, in, the, in, the, in the highest order. But, exactly. you know, at the time, it was considered something. And we think it's bonkers right. now. So what is the thing that exactly. we're doing now that we're going to consider bonkers in time? So we're mm-hmm. going to shift and change and we're going to learn. But, you know, it's also That's right. what, what represents therapy more than, than a phrenology? statue. That's right, exactly. It's, and uh, uh, it's interesting how research has evolved in psychotherapy in general, because, you know, the field's only a little over 100 years old, and, uh, you know, a very small period of time in the scale of human history. But when I studied to be a marriage and family therapy, I found it fascinating. I was trained psychodynamically. And uh, you look at the early theorists in marriage and family therapy and in psychotherapy in general, what they did is they had an approach that worked maybe a third of the time, Remember that no therapy also works a third of the time. They would cherry pick two or three cases that worked, write a book about it, go on a lecture tour, and that would be their approach. And uh, we've now evolved to be a lot more science-based. And I think the next frontier is more people who have lived experience, especially as clinicians, have more of a a role in the research agenda. I look at the nothing about us without us movement, neurodiversity, for example, and I look at 
the advocacy of people with lived experience with OCD who've been driving the ICBT movement, for example. I think that's more of a trend that we need to be seeing more of in the future, and I think that's going to be very healthy for the field. Uh, and my advice to everybody, whether you're, you know, uh, whether you're a proponent of current evidence or whether you're a proponent of new approaches, is delight in the company of everybody who's trying to, you know, heal people in this field and be open to new ideas. Don't be gatekeepers of those ideas. Share your misgivings about what is and isn't as proven as what you like the best. But uh, but always, you know. Listen to the voices of people who've been there before, and, uh, and especially listen to the client who's in front of you, and be willing to try things if what you like doing most isn't working. Right. I, I don't think it could be said any 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 better than that. I think um, you know. Is there is there? It, I know we we've been talking for quite some time. Is there is there anything else yeah. that you'd want to add, or you know, would, because I think we can kind of move towards the wrapping up. But is there anything else that you want to add to kind of maybe give give listeners, um, you know, either either on the client side, the supporter side, or the therapist side, uh, uh, you know, a, mm-hmm. a clearer idea. Uh, yeah, I think just one last thing I'd like to say, and Kevin, I want to say I have so enjoyed this conversation. Uh, this has been, uh, we've covered so much good ground here, mm-hmm. and this has been so much fun holding forth with you about it. You know I'm a big fan, fan of your podcast, you know, for a long time anyway. Well, but uh, I do want to have a word to the sufferers out there, mm-hmm. which is uh, the, uh, if I want to get a pair of sunglasses, the best, you know, even if somebody has a sunglasses shop that is devoted to sunglasses, I may not like their sunglasses. And so if you're a sufferer, and I think it's really important that, number one, you advocate for yourself. If what Dr. Wonderful is doing with you isn't working for you, have a conversation about that. Don't just follow what the what the clinician says. Ask questions. I also encourage you to keep in touch with the literature. You know, there's a lot of information out there on Google for free about what we're all talking about in the profession. So ask good questions and uh, you deserve to get well. We're just plumbers. Um, you're the boss and we work for you. <laughs> and so, and the other thing is uh, the power of community. Uh, I I'm such a fan of everybody in the OCD community, the IOCDF, the community of lived experience clinicians. I with podcasts like yours and Stuart Ralph's, um, you have done such a service by building a community of us sufferers where we talk to each other. And so um, that's my advice to any sufferer is, is be part of this community, um, be a listener to it and also be a voice in it and advocate for yourself. Cause you know, at the end of the day, we're all here to serve you. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love, I, Again, could not be said any better. So, be an advocate. Speak, <laughs> speak up. If it feels like it's not quite working, it's it. It may be because it's not exactly. quite working, and you as you and your clinician are working as a team in a common right. direction. If it feels like it's this just push and pull, you know, have a conversation about that. See if you can redirect that. So, I think that's fantastic. So, um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more written on this. Hopefully there's a lot more discussion on this. We'll kind of see how we're going to progressively hone in on this and hopefully help some folks with, you know, struggling with um, uh, disgust-based obsessions. So, um, is is there a place where people can learn more about you or get more information? Sure, absolutely. The uh, first of all, the discuss protocol is in the latest IOCDF newsletter, and it's also on uh, on the blog 
at iocdf.org as well. So if you want to check into that, that's where that lives. Um, if you want to learn more about my cockeyed opinions about OCD treatment or a little more about me, uh, my website is anxietycamp.com. I have a blog as well. Um, I've also published several self-help books um, with my own cockeyed view of the world, and they're all on Amazon. <laughs> if you want to look for them, and they're also listed on that website. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll link to some of those things as well. So, um, I mean, okay, sounds pre- great. pretty soon you'll just have your, your own podcast where you can, you can put your cockeyed views in the ears of someone else. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. For I, I want to be, I, I want to be Kevin Foss when I grow up. I don't think I'll ever get there. <laughs> uh, I, you're amazing, Kevin. I, I, I want to be the person that you think I am one day too. So <laughs> I think I'll get there. Sounds so, great. all right. Well, uh, Rich Gallagher, thank you so much for joining me today and spending this time. So um, uh, if there's, if you, oh, I'll say this, if there is, um, are, if there are questions that people have about disgust-based obsessions and they send them in, would mm-hmm. you be willing to jump back in and answer some of those questions? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. I'm always happy to respond to people as well. Awesome, Rich. Well, we'll we'll hopefully have you on again in the future. So thanks so much and have a great day. Anytime. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. All right, everybody, you made it through this episode. Thank you so much for uh, sticking it out with us. I know we had a long chat, but uh, I think it was a, a really a really interesting one. I think it was a really important one. And hopefully, if you're listening to it, you found some some information that was a that, that could be encouraging, motivational, or perhaps an open door to trying something different. And that's the whole purpose of this conversation. So um, if you have questions about this, again, if you have questions for Rich, um, send them over to fearcastpodcast.com, either through the website or go over to Instagram and message me over there. And um, uh, uh, he's, uh, if, if I, you know, with any question, I'll reach out to him and see if he'd be willing to jump back on to kind of discuss uh, your particular situation and to see if he can offer some, you know, some stuff to think about. So, um, uh, I, I, I suppose to that end, please remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. I should also say that even when we're answering these questions, we're not offering psychotherapy precisely. We're offering ideas and information similar to as you'd find in a book. And, um, you know, apply it, don't apply it, figure out what's going to work for you. But most importantly, talk about this information with your therapist or uh, the, the, the person who's helping you through this. So, uh, remember, it's not um, psychotherapy. It's not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about um, uh, or need any help in your recovery, go to fearcastpodcast.com, and there's going to be the find help link. Click on that. There's going to be some information for you there. So until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye. 